Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Best Deal episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about the legendary best deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person executing it. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor possible. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith. I'm the owner of Royal Legal Solutions, the one-stop shop for everything real estate investors need for tax, legal, business, you name it. We do it all Royal Legal Solutions for everybody in the country, uh, every type of asset class. And I have the pleasure today of speaking with a, uh, a new and good friend of mine, Adam Gower. Um, he, uh, he's one of these uh, guys that if you've never met somebody who's a, a, a true creative in their field, uh, this is what you're going to be experiencing today uh, with Adam. We have a, a typical format, if you guys know, into the show. Um, where we're talking about how the deals would flow, right? And what's the beginning, middle, and end of the deal, and what's a lesson learned. Um, and Adam actually has so much experience um, that we're just going to go do some treasure hunting today with him about just picking through the things of his life, all the deals that he's been a part of, what are the bigger lessons that he's learned, what ways have uh, steered him towards uh, good deals and bad deals. And the deal um, ultimately today that we're going to be talking about is actually one um, that was a best deal and a worst deal uh, depending upon the take on it, guys. So there's a ton of info to get into, but I'm going to allow Adam to um, introduce himself. Um, Adam, you know, everybody that listens to the show, pretty much all real estate investors and entrepreneurs, um, for them to understand, you know, where you're coming from when you're talking about the deals um, that you get into, what do they need to know about you? So the, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure to be here. You've set me up for very high expectations. So uh, hopefully I can live up to them. Uh, my, so I think probably the best, the best perspective is that my background goes back a very long way and that I have lived through several downturns. And to me, that's probably the biggest lesson that you could learn. It might not be one that you want to learn and one that you actively go out and learn about. Uh, but uh, going through a downturn is without doubt the most important thing that a real estate investor and sponsor needs to appreciate or needs to go through in order to be able to appreciate the real depths and the real reality of real estate investing. So that would be the kind of the key thing, I think, to, uh, to understand me is that I've been through a few and have some semblance of understanding of the implications. Why is that um, so important to have like experienced the big pain to be able to have, yeah. It's like going to Vegas. You know what they say, right? You go to Vegas and you roll the dice and each time you win, eventually it's stacked against you. And if you're not prepared, right, for that turnaround, then you're going you're gonna to lose, lose your shirt. Uh, in real estate, it's very easy, especially we're in, uh, you know, if, you, if you're sitting at the tail end of an up cycle, Scott, um, and have only been in the industry for the duration of that up cycle. So, you know, appreciative of evergreen content, right? But at where we are now, uh, at the, uh, you know, 10th or 12th year of an upturn, if you've only been in real estate since 2009, and you think there's a, there's a danger that you expect real estate will continue 
on its upward trajectory and continue in that direction. I, there is only one guarantee in real estate, and that is the market will turn down, period. And if you're not prepared for that turn, for that downturn, uh, you will lose your shirt, period. So having the experience of going through it uh, is, is very valuable. How do you balance that, Adam, between um, looking at, you know, you have to have some optimism to get into a deal just period, right? There's a million good reasons not to do anything at all and maybe not to even get out of bed in the morning, you know? You can find some probably some pretty good yeah, reasons. Yeah. Like, you know, the heck with the whole thing, right? So take some level of optimism to be able to get into the deal to take risks. And then, and then I hear what you're saying, which is like, hey, well, listen, though, but there's actually you need to have know how bad things can get so you can really weigh the risks appropriately. And how do you balance those two? Yes. Yeah, so it's uh, so you're quite right. I mean, you can end up being so paranoid that you end up being completely inactive. Right? <laughs> you're just worried that you, know, you stay in bed all day. So I'm not talking about that. What I'm describing is risk mitigation. So when you go into a deal, be aware of what the risks are and structure the, your, your investment, whether you're a developer or an investor, structure your activities in a way that mitigates the risk, right? And if you know, truly know what those risks are, then you will know how to mitigate them. I mean, that's what your business is about, right, Scott? Basically, is, is that you are planning for the worst, but working towards the best, right? You, right? So, for example, in my career, one of the biggest lessons that I learned was working for a, uh, I ran a $200 million distressed debt fund at one point, or distressed note fund. And the way that we design, the way that we underwrote the finances of every deal that we invested in was a best, a worst, and a most likely scenario. So we actually had three spreadsheets or three analyses, a best, worst, and most likely scenario. So the most likely was the one that we assumed that we would get, but we kept our eye on the worst case scenario as well and underwrote the downside to that worst case scenario. Can we survive if this worst case scenario does actually come around, right? And that way you know that you're going to be able to hold on to the asset in the long run. Very cool. Well, when you're, when you're getting into, say, um, uh, to, to different deals and you're looking at like what the worst case scenario would be, I think a lot of people um, have a hard time actually knowing what a worst case scenario could be, right? Because they could, they, you know, it's easy for the imagination to run away into doomsday scenarios, just like it is for people to, um, you know, run away on the other side, right? Of thinking like, oh, I'm going to do these deals and I'm going to make 100% per year because I am going to invest in the next top market and, and whatnot, right? So in what ways have you found that it's been helpful for people um, to, to mitigate both sides of that, to even have a good good check on their own um, realistic expectations, either on the optimistic or the pessimistic side? Yeah, that's actually, it's a really, really good question. And I've, I've actually had experiences where we were hampered by excessive worst case scenario um, concerns. And those, that's a whole different story. It involved 
the potential for litigation and a, a desire to stay away from that possibility. And that was exclusively in the distressed world, the distressed real estate world environment. So in the normal situation, if you're buying into, let's, let's pick a, a multifamily deal, an apartment deal, either as an investor or as a developer, there are two key aspects that uh, you want to be uh, measuring for worst case scenario. One is income and the other is expenses, right? What does it, how much income are you going to get and how much is it going to cost you to run the deal? So on the, on the cost side, the biggest number that you've got to keep an eye on and, and stress test is the level of debt that you have. Because, because when you take on debt, particularly from a financial institution, a bank that is federally insured, right? They have very little flexibility if you stop paying on that debt. They will, after a certain period of time, look to foreclose, to take the deal away from you. And in the loan docs that you sign with them, they will have, as you know, the right to take it away from you. There's no negotiation. There might be a little bit, but they're regulated and they have to act in a certain way. So measuring on the, on the one hand, looking at how much debt you have in any deal is a very good way of stress testing the downside. On the upside, you, or actually also on the same level though, is that how do you measure income? So a great way to look at income is to assume if you're going into an apartment deal, you're going to be looking at, you know, we assume that we're getting picking numbers out of my ear, right? It's $1,000 a month in rent on this underperforming asset, and we're going to get it to 1300 right? And everything then, all your projections then are dependent on you reaching that level. Well, one way, one thing you have to be conscious of is vacancy rates and a softening market where you are unable to increase rents and that effectively your rental income drops. So of course you could assume as you know, it drops to some, some completely impossible to manage level, but a great way to determine how far in a worst case scenario it's going to drop is to look historically to see percentage wise how far the market you're investing in fell during the last recession. So if you see rents dropping or vacancy rates increasing so that your income was gonna drop uh, or drop 30%, right? During the last recession, that would be a good flaw to assume on the downside, you would fall to the next time. So once you've got that number in your pro forma, then look at the level of debt and the expense and make sure that your debt isn't higher or your total costs aren't higher than that worst case scenario rental income. Then you can survive, right, if there is a downturn. So that would be your worst case scenario and how to calculate it. I really hope that uh, people took notes on that piece of it because there's three, I took away three major highlights that I think we've heard from Grant Cardone. We've heard from you now, Adam, we've heard from another other people in there, which is number one, if you're thinking the market's a little shaky, you need to have a lower LTV onto what it's going to be. You're talking like 70% are below on your LTVs because that's how you're going to make sure your payment's going to be low enough. And why does your payment need to be low? Because your vacancy rates could go up, just like you underscored just now. 
And if you're in a single family home, holy smokes, can you get into trouble quick on that? And why it might be important to buy multi-unit properties where you can have, you don't, it's not an all or nothing on your vacancy rate at any given time. Um, and to pull into that too. And then the third piece I just wanted to underline, underscore, and this one is to look historically into what's going on last time, right? So you might think that you're in a really strong market, right? Maybe you're invested in Austin, Texas right now. And you're thinking, hey, the big tech companies have just all moved into here. Uh, you have all of the government. People are still moving into Austin every single day. Just supply and demand would tell you that it's really strong. We're having a new military base. It's a tech-oriented military base that's being built out here. Well, holy smokes, you know, like uh, how could Austin, uh, how could I possibly lose investing in Austin in an up market? And what you want to do is look back historically, what happened in 2008. Um, and when you look back at what happened in 2008, you might say, holy smokes, I really love Austin because in 2008, we didn't have a whole lot going on and it didn't drop much for what was going on. So we say, wow, this is a really strong place to play. Now, am I investing a lot in Austin right now? No, I'm not. But I could, but these are the, t what I'm trying to underline uh, for everybody listening is saying that these are ways that you can start thinking about looking at things historically and then starting to play around with what's your risk tolerance, even inside of your historical analysis. But you're going to get 95% of the way there with just checking the major boxes that Adam just gave you as a gift um, that, you, that you don't get. I mean, you'll spend thousands of dollars in guru courses to hear the exact same thing just stretched out over two and a half days. Exactly. But bear this in mind, you get what you pay for. And my advice on this show is free. <laughs> I'm going to give you always you get what you pay for. And sometimes you pay for what you get. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. yeah. Yeah. So I've got three other points. Let me make some three other points. One a little bit tongue in cheek, but some really key points for that downside. And, and actually to what to be looking for actively in any deal that you're looking at. First of all, and this is a little bit tongue in cheek, but when you start hearing everybody talking about how uh, the market is in this location going to continue going up, when you hear them saying, yes, but it's going to, it's different this time, right? And you hear that everywhere. You know, it's time to start pulling out because there's a consciousness that a recession is coming and everybody is rationalizing the upside. So if everyone says, yes, but it's different this time, warning sign. Another thing to really watch for that's a little bit more tangible, particularly in multifamily apartment deals, is look out, drive around the neighborhood, and if you see signs on newly built buildings that say free rent, move-in bonus, uh, one month free. That is a clear sign of excess supply. I guarantee that when those deals were underwritten, they did not underwrite to giving an 8% discount, which is what a free month off is, right? That's number one. Plus, this is now a bit more technical. By offering a free month, you are still, as a developer, able to hold theoretically, rents at projected levels, right? But in reality, you are offering a discount. So there's some optics involved with that. So if you see free rent signs, that is a sign of a softening market. The third thing is with debt. It's really important not to have short-term debt because what happens if you do, 
when you come to resetting, when the, when the loan has to be refinanced or it has to be paid off, right? So if you get a three-year maturity, for example, even five-year maturity, when you reach maturity, you have to pay that off. And, if your in, and that's typically by refinancing. And if your income levels are not where you think or projected they would be, what that's going to require is a pay down of the loan. So if you borrow $5 million in four years time, you might only be able to borrow 4 million because the income is not where you thought it was going to be. And that actually is what killed a lot of deals during the last downturn. Liquidity dried up, banks insisted on lower leverage. So they made lower loans and developers were unable to refinance. And so they lost the properties. You can find people that even made good bets, so to speak, inside of like where the asset was going to be and whatnot. But they would say they could still catch themselves inside of a pinch because banks all of a sudden will change what their LTV rates will be. Yes, exactly right. Yes. And there were other things like uh, material. What was it called, Scott? It was uh, a, a material adverse change in conditions. So this was something that banks used during the last downturn. It's probably in your loan docs. If there is a material adverse change, uh, a bank can stop, especially on a construction loan, can actually stop providing uh, draws if they believe that the economy has had a material adverse change. It was very controversial, but it took a lot of people by surprise. Um, but it was defensive for banks who were trying to protect their own existence, actually. It was an existential problem they was trying to solve as well. So there's a lot going on inside all this stuff, as you well know. Yeah, I know. These, these are great points, Adam. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more about um, where you were talking about the optics of what a developer will do if they say, hey, you know, they, they brought an operator will say, hey, oh, we'll just offer uh, one month free uh, rent on moving in. And that still allows me to keep my optics good. But even though I actually am losing money on it, how does that actually shake out? Because I would think at the end of the year, I'd see a P&L uh, for my syndication operator and I'd say, hey, you know, this is bogus. What's going on? Yes, that's right. Uh, but by the end of the year, it might be too late, Scott, right? Okay. And during the year, um, and listen, this is, there are two perspectives to this, right? One has to, one has to be respectful of high integrity operators. And as an investor, you want to be able to get to, you want to be able to assure yourself that the operator you're investing with is a, uh, a highly credible player with high integrity. And one way to determine that is to hear what I'm talking to you about, what I'm explaining from them, right? If they offer, look, we're having, this is where we think the market's going. This is what we're going to have to do to mitigate that. That's a very straightforward player. Somebody that describes that's what they went through during the last cycle and is able to articulate that's what we may have to do next time is somebody you want to pay attention to. Somebody that only paints a rosy picture is you've got to get under the hood a lot deeper to be sure they know where they're going. When you talk about optics, the way that it will work, if you think about any pro forma that you look at, that pro forma is going to say, picking that same number we picked a few moments ago, $1,000 in current rent. We're going to upgrade each unit, 5000 per unit. And we're going to get rents to 1300 right? We'll do the exterior shell. We'll do some other stuff, improve the HVAC, et cetera, et cetera, deferred maintenance, whatever. We'll get it to 1300 So now on an ongoing basis, if you have those reports 
And those reports are saying we're hitting that 1300 as projected, when in reality, there are these concessions being made. Right, we're giving people. Yes, they're paying. That look. Here's the contract. It says thirteen hundred uh, a month, but the fact is that you got to look. Is there a, is there a one month free rent or two months free rent? Is that at the end of the term? Is that at the beginning of the term? If that's the either way, it's a discount. It's an eight percent discount. So they're not hitting projections. And by the end of the year, you don't want to discover that actually the bottom line looks very different right, than you expected. So that's what I mean by optics. You can Very tell well. the truth, but not necessarily all the truth. <laughs> but I think this is, a, this is an amazing thing to, uh, to highlight, Adam, because even, so a lot of people would, you know, are probably like myself, right? I can't actually influence probably much of what the operator can do during the first year of the term. And if I wanted to boot the operator out, man, is that like an undertaking to rally all the investors and then I have to find a new operator to take it over unless I want to take it over myself, which I absolutely don't want to do unless I'm going to lose the farm on it uh, for some reason, right? But these are awesome questions to be asking, to know the tricks that people will do to make the optics better and, to, and then to put, put them to the test with the questions to see, uh, to test the integrity of your operator, so to speak, right? Because maybe, maybe the game is a little bit deeper. It's not maybe just about this one deal, but it's also about how much do I really know about this person? Maybe this is a small deal with this guy. And I really want to know, like, is he really being, how, how upfront is he being? on these small deals before I get into the big deal and knowing those questions to ask the tricks that they might play would give us better insight into who that person is. Exactly. Look, you know, we didn't talk about what I do right, these days, <clears throat> but I do two things. One, I provide investor education, high level. And the other is I provide digital marketing services. So sponsors can raise money online. And one of the first things that I advise sponsors in terms of the educational materials, that they put out there is address investor concerns up front and center. What are the biggest concerns that investors are going to have today about investing with you and address those immediately? And that does two things. One, it allay, it, if you don't do that, investors are going to be thinking about it no matter what else you say. You could be telling them about the best deal in the world. And if in their mind, they're worried that a recession is around the corner. All they're going to be thinking about is, this guy's not talk about a recession yet, right? So you want to talk about that first. Get that out of the way and explain. Put your investor's mind at rest that you've managed that. The, the second reason that it's important to do that is by doing that, you are demonstrating that you are aware of these issues and that you are managing them. So it not only puts their mind at rest that you've dealt with them, but it also demonstrates your integrity, that you're willing to deal with the true challenges of real estate development and investment up front and center, that you're looking at the hard questions first, not the look how much money you're going to make with me as the only theme of their narrative with you. Absolutely. Yeah. It brings some authenticity to the relationship, doesn't it? And that, exactly like, how important right. is authenticity in today's, uh, today's day and age, right? Uh, and then speaking of that realm, I think that we'd be remiss if we didn't take at least a few moments to talk about that, that best deal that also turned into the worst deal or vice versa um, yeah. into it. Because I, I'm sure people are, are curious to know how could somebody, you know, 
you know, that has so much wisdom and so much knowledge in this area ever make a mistake and not maybe not knowing that no matter how much you know, you can still always end up in a tight spot with stuff. So I was wondering if you would share a little bit with us about that story. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So after a long career, uh, developing for other people, raising money for other people uh, and developing for other people, uh, both uh, here and abroad, I uh, came back to the, uh, to the States in uh, the early 2000s and started doing my own developments, right? So I set up a development company and I was doing single family home deals, uh, utilizing a new um, regulation that had been passed, a new ordinance that had been passed in the Los Angeles area. It was called uh, the Small Lot Subdivision or the Small Lot Ordinance. And what the city of LA had decided to do was because prices, excuse me, were so high, they had allowed the minimum size of a lot uh, for a single family home fee simple to go from 5,000 square feet to 500 square feet, I think 600 square foot, zero lot line. So you could build to the lot line, right? It was incredible ordinance. And the idea was that if the value of land was brought down, then the subsequent cost or, or sales price of a home would be would come down as well right it would facilitate housing so i became quite expert in this i discovered this ordinance and i bought uh an acre of land in the absolute epicenter of high density la and i started developing this project and i think i designed it for 18 of these little homes and the lessons that I brought from my first 20 years of experience, however long that I'd had by the time I was doing this, it was about that, 20, 18 years or so, was to be ultra detail oriented. Uh, so I, I had come to see the world through the cells of a spreadsheet. Uh, and there's a long story behind that happened. But for every single cell in the spreadsheet, I had underwritten the assumptions very, very carefully. So every cost line item had three bids behind it and a negotiation, right? So I was extremely thorough about this. And it looked like I was gonna do very, very well. And I'd actually financed this using, uh, um, you know, tr the traditional way. I'd gone out in person and pitched to people that I knew personally and had raised the money that I needed, right? Put together pitch decks and, and made these, uh, these pitches. So this was now, I think I bought the asset in 2005. And in 2007, things started to happen with the subprime market. So the single family home, there was things going on in the debt markets. And Scott, I was waking up in the middle of the night it's suffering from anxiety and I couldn't put my finger on why. I just knew something was wrong right, with the market. There were people that I was, I was trying to get construction loans from banks and people were, I'd call up having worked with somebody and they'd left the bank and they'd shown up at another bank and there was just some strange, I didn't know what was going on. And there was one gal actually at Countrywide Funnily enough, now in hindsight, you can figure out what was happening. <clears throat> and so the difficult, the really, really difficult decision that I made at that time 
was I had planned to develop this thing. I'd spent two years with entitlements, architectural, neighborhood councils, planning. I mean, really everything. I, and I'd, I'd fortunately not spent the money I was going to make in my mind, right? I, I had it out there and I knew it was going to be a big win on this particular project. But the decision I made was to sell. I decided I'm going to get out of this deal. It's, I'm uncomfortable with where the market is. I'm not going to continue with this. And it was particularly difficult because one of my investors, a very high net worth uh, entertainment industry executive, somebody who had run one of the studios, I can't use names, uh, but I'd worked for uh, as a direct report. I thought he was going to sue me, actually because he had invested a half million with me to develop this land. And I called him and said, there is something going on, we need to get out. But despite his subtle threats, <laughs> right? don't do it, I paid you to get in and build this thing out and sell it, I sold. And almost the day after, the lights went out in the market and the whole real estate cycle came to an end and the bottom fell out of the market. So it was a very, very stressful time. But having the courage to, to adapt to circumstances saved my economic and financial life. I made a lot of money. We still exited very well because we'd gone in with an unentitled piece of land. We exited with an entitled one to somebody else who bought it cash, it was an institutional buyer, and only 10 years later ended up selling it for what they, less than they paid me for it, and then somebody else developed it and made money. But the lesson was, go with your convictions. Don't, if you think things are changing, be willing to adapt your business strategy to protect yours and your investors' best interests, and um, don't be afraid to make difficult decisions. Adam, this is really interesting because I, I was trying to pick apart, um, you know, just to be transparent, how you make decisions. Because there's, you're obviously from the way you describe the spreadsheets, right? You have a hyper analytical and thorough way of making a decision. But the way that you decided to make this decision came out from, uh, like an intuitive place. Like my intuition is telling me that there's something wrong that's happening right now and I'm gonna act on that. Yeah. How do you balance those two when you're making these really tough calls? Because everybody else, I mean, a lot of people have said, intellectually speaking, just like your investor, would have said, you're crazy. What are you doing? Yeah, you, you're asking me to go very deep on something I've not actually really unpacked before. But what I do remember was that we did underwrite this deal. So it was a for sale housing project, 18 homes that were gonna be sold. And we had underwrite, underwrote the best case scenario as an exit at a projected per foot basis, right? So it was a big win. The downside was that the market wa would uh, collapse, that we would be unable to sell the homes for what we had projected we would sell them for. And that in order to survive, we would have to rent them out. So we'd also done an, a rental analysis on these single family homes and assumed that if we can get a certain level of rent, we'll be able to build them 
and hold them. What was worrying me was something that became apparent that, that was, it was a black swan event, Scott. It was something that you couldn't underwrite to or predict. And that was a near collapse of the entire financial system. And what I was worried about was that there was something going on in banking. Uh, who, you know, was, was one guy, I remember, that it was one fellow I had asked to partner with me on this deal. And he asked me, who was my insurance company? Who was going to underwrite? Because you have a, on these deals, you have a 10-year tail. You build these things. In California, you're liable for 10 years. So I had to have insurance that carried me through that, right, for making errors or whatever. And he asked me, who was the insurance company? I thought, insurance company? Why would it matter, right? What insurance? An insurance company. The stalwarts of the American economy are the banks and the insurance companies. And he said, because he'd been through recessions like I had before, his experience was he'd even seen insurance. Now, this is all sounding very bleak, and I don't mean to be like but he had also seen insurance companies fail. So he wanted to be sure that I had insured my property with a AAA rated insurance company, somebody that he felt comfortable as the, actually as the general contractor on that tail with. And so that had stimulated this thought in my mind, gosh, well, especially when the banks started to hurt in 2006, 2007, going into 08, this is bigger than anything I'd predicted. I want out, right? I want to get into cash, I want to sit quiet, see what happens. Uh, and that's why. So it was, wasn't something I predicted. It was something I intuited at the time. Awesome, man. Well, what, what I see from an outsider's perspective um, is that uh, you came in with a large amount of um, analytical prowess into it, a lot amount of planning. Here's my best case. Here's my middle case. Here's my worst case scenario of what's going to happen. Did a ton of work on that. And then the only reason that you deviated from that plan is because you said, I didn't actually underwrite for any of these, this, this scenario, and this looks worse than this. So I'm out. But your check-in on saying, do I need to act on this was actually internal. It was, I'm waking up with anxiety. There's, my alarm bells are going off. I can't tell you exactly why, but I'm going to trust that intuition and then make a decision based upon my pre-planned decisions. What I think is so amazing about this um, story for me, Adam, and, and something I'm really taking to heart as like a lesson learned today from, from myself from your story is the importance of doing all of the hard work and the analytical work of doing all of the planning. And then also having the present state of mind and the present state of awareness of knowing like, am I still on course for one of these plans or something else really changed? And how can I know that inside of myself? And am I aware with what's going on inside of me that says, hey, this is actually not right. And there's something here that you need to pay attention to. Um, and what's great about yours, you're like, I don't really, I don't really know, but I know it's not this. And so I'm going to go ahead and just bail out and pull the ripcord because when I don't know, I'm taking the, the safe way out. You know, there's a flip side to it as well, an optimistic side as well. And this I've seen throughout my career. Um, the wealthiest investors, real estate investors that I've come across in my career buy and never sell. Right? They buy for the long term, the long haul. The best deals I've ever gone into have been those that I've held on to 
forever, right? Now I'm just, I, I wish I'd have bought more, right? Doesn't everyone, right? In those days, but long-term is good. The flip side to this same story is that you're cruising along, everything is going just as you want it to, and somebody shows up and offers you a silly price that you can't underwrite to. Under no best case scenario, could you get to that number? Then you can sell, right? It's the flip side of this. Like, you know what? I'm out. This is also an option, right? This guy, something about, he's seeing value here that I cannot explain. I'm out. I'm going to give it to him. That's what he thinks it's worth. Good luck. Take it. So that's the other side of this. That's awesome, man. Well, Adam, uh, I would like to give you an opportunity to leave the listeners uh, with what you want to highlight as a lesson learned from today. You've given so much in today's episode. Thank you for sharing so um, openly and honestly and genuinely with what it is. I mean, it's just incredible stuff today. But if you were going to underscore a one lesson learned for everybody out of your talk, what would that be for their takeaway? Oh, gosh. One lesson learned. I think... I think the most important thing is be aware of your surroundings in real estate. <clears throat> be aware of where the economy is. Be aware of where the, the micro uh, market is that you're active in. Uh, be tuned in to what's going on and be willing to be flexible and be completely transparent and straightforward with what's going on with your investors uh, or if you're a developer, uh, as an investor, you want to see a sponsor who is completely transparent and totally willing to discuss the potential for both ups and downs with you openly and discuss with you how they're going to mitigate any circumstance. So I think transparency and an awareness of micro markets is very important. Awesome, Adam. And, and for anybody looking to reach out to you, what, what types of people are you looking to connect with and what's the best way for them to reach you? Okay, so I, my primary focus at the moment is in building digital marketing systems focused uh, on the real estate development market, specifically for syndicators who want to raise money from investors, either from their existing investors or to build a database of new investors, and they want to do it online. So I build systems for sponsors to do exactly that. Uh, I also provide some very, very detailed educational courses for investors who want to hear me talking like this for 16 hours. <laughs> Uh, and you can access that covers absolutely everything that you would ever need to know to underwrite a, an investment in a real estate deal, not to do it yourself, but to underwrite one. And it's all available at my website, gowercrowd.com. Awesome, guys. Well, go check out gowercrowd.com. Uh, um, and if you like this episode, Adam just told us, hey, I got 16 hours more of content that's probably much better organized than what we had here through the show. Uh, to be able to walk through it, guys. But I, I very highly encourage you to go to GowerCrowd.com um, and check out um, that kind of quality of information from somebody that's been in the ups and the downs and with the insights and the level of details um, that come through it and to follow um, the work that Adam's doing and 
Uh, see when you can pick up some of these gems like he dropped on us here today, which aren't just the intellectual gems that you can maybe grab from a, a guru about real estate or something like that. But like these deeper lessons that are about like how, what are you, what, how are you going to make the decision, right? What goes beyond the spreadsheet? A lot of what he told us today was about what are all of the things that the spreadsheet didn't have, right? And so no, no matter how good you are on an intellectual and analytical basis, there's a whole other side of the coin that we talk about on Real Estate Nerds that Adam was gracious enough to share with us about, which is everything else that makes you a person that's not just your analytical mind that all goes into what it takes to be uh, successful here in text and it takes to make tough calls so go to the um to uh, gowercrowd.com and uh and, and go check that out and thank you guys for tuning into the real estate nerds podcast of course i'm your host scott royal smith i'll catch you guys here again soon that's all for this best deal episode and i'm your host scott royal smith with the real estate nerds podcast when investments go good they can go great your legendary best deal could be your next one. So keep at it. Thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in those sleeping masses for what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day and I'll see you again soon.